You are listening to March Madman, the podcast devised to determine what is the greatest haunted house movie of them all. We started with 32 films, paired up two by two, all of the NCAA tournament, and one after another, 28 of them have been eliminated. We're down to the fearful four, and each movie will get its very own loving autopsy before we reveal the championship matchup and determine our winner. Tonight, going under the knife is the top seed in the tourney. It's Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. I am your host, John Evans, and my co-hosts, my co-pilots on this supernatural voyage, are the writer of the found footage classic Devil's Pass, Vikram Wheat, a man who is always ready to party and talk horror movies, and Emmy-nominated TV producer Rich Eckersley, who is also a skilled baker and Spotify playlist maker. <laughs> Gentlemen, I hope you have your surgical gowns on, because it's time to do an autopsy. Rich, what's good, my man? What's good? Well, man, hey, the fact that I made it this far in the day is good. It was a challenging day in our household. Uh, my son, not to get not to get too detailed, he's having a little bit of tummy trouble. I was literally pooped on twice today, and I don't mean that in like a cute baby way. I mean it in like a gross, full-grown toddler kind of way. Wow! How, and, how old is he now? Uh, he's nearly two. And, yeah. And you know, d- despite all that, John, I can also safely say that that wasn't the biggest pile of shit I've had to deal with today because I also watched tonight's movie. Oh, Rich. You know, Rich, I love you, man, but I also fucking hate you when you say things like that. (laughs) So harsh. So harsh. Well, I'm sorry to hear you were shit on. You might be shit on some more tonight, but... (laughs) (laughs) I've had plenty of practice on the podcast, so my son poses no challenge to me. (laughs) But but seriously, it was quite gross. I I won't go into any further detail. I can just say, uh, Vic understands. Vic, you get it. Yeah, I've been I've been pooped on many times, uh, sometimes against my will, <laughs> as, as opposed to consensual poop. Yes, there is. A, well, well I, again, we don't want to get into it on the podcast, but uh, yeah, yes, I know exactly what you mean. Right? Uh, what you used to pay prostitutes to do in New York, Vic, is really none of our concern tonight. I like the fact that he's going to New York. Like in, in your mind, he's classy enough to travel for this service. <laughs> <laughs> best work well i was hinting at his murky past that we're not directly involved in but yeah 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 well the rich maybe you've heard the phrase don't shit where you eat so you, you gotta you gotta do we gotta go out of town for that sort of thing don't get uh, your uh, chest shit on where you eat <laughs> i think we've i think we've gone as far as we can with that well, that's a good segue to vic how are you doing tonight man i, I just want to apologize to all of our listeners uh uh, hang in there. It's it's it, maybe it's going to get better. I'm doing I'm doing pretty well. Uh, it's uh, it's it's 
a bit of a scary time just generally. There's a, a lot of stuff going on that I, I won't talk about so that this podcast remains evergreen, that it is timeless. Uh, so just know that while we're recording this, uh, the the world is still another uh, steaming pile of shit, just to bring it all full circle. The hilarious thing is that could be at any point in, in the course of human history, and people will be like, yeah, yeah, I get it, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it might happen to be um, somewhat appropriate to be talking about horror movies right now at this moment in time that we are recording this. And so there might hopefully be an extra oomph here, but if y'all are listening to this in January or March or February, uh, don't worry about it. But, um, let's just say it is, it's the witching hour somewhere and I'm ready to talk about ghosts in a fucking hotel. Are you guys? Yeah. Woohoo! Bring on the innkeepers. (laughs) (laughs) That's also where my head went, Vic. Thank you. All right. Well, in in the tradition of our previous shows, and it's been quite a while since we've done that, I am just going to roll the movie on my own screen and uh, bring stuff up as it goes along and ask you guys how you feel about it. And we're just going to kind of take this thing scene by scene. And I I think that uh, without further ado, let's talk about this incredible opening sequence, this staggering helicopter shot, which Vic has pointed out is marred irrevocably at some point by the shadow of a helicopter. And so, yeah, I guess I should throw it to you, Vic, to start. How just devastating is it to this incredible visual of this tiny little uh, Volkswagen bug, you know, this, which is a perfect choice, right? Because it's representing that this man driving to this hotel is an insignificant insect in the whole scope of the world. And he's, he is literally in a bug and he's, he's going to the overlook hotel and, uh, there might be a helicopter shadow at some point. So uh, tell us your feelings about this. Well, I, I really noticed and was struck by a lot in this opening scenes about establishing the isolation of the Overlook Hotel. That's really key to making the movie work. And that's really what they're doing in these shots. I think all the the metaphors you drew up about the tiny, you know, the tiny bug and, and just really showing how wild it is and how far it is to get to this hotel. I just think that that, that sense of isolation is undermined by the helicopter trailing along behind him. It just makes him <laughs> less isolated. Well, you know... I'm- Nobody's perfect. <laughs> it is It is beautifully shot, and the music, I mean, even watching it for the 37th time or however many times I've seen this film, man, when that, when that music comes up over those shots, it, it really sets the tone. The score, the sound design in this movie are exceptional. I, I, Rich, I don't think even you could argue with that, right? No, actually, I, one of my notes about this, I mean, my, my very first note on my notepad here is uh, this incredible opening score. And I love not, not only how foreboding it is, but the, but the fact that it also has touches that sonically evoke uh, Native American culture, mm-hmm. just a little bit in the back. There's some vocals that are just like flitting about. It's, it's very effective. I, uh, yeah, I, like, I get the complaint about the, the helicopter, but 
I also just feel like we're in a different time of filmmaking. I love the the drifting quality of this movie, and and I have some some thoughts on that, like moving down the line a little bit, but. I do feel like there's something that's going on here with the way that the camera sort of swings back and forth that I do think is a little intentional and that it's not only foreboding, but like it's a little loose at the beginning. This is not straight down the barrel horror right off the top. It's kind of floating and, you know, it doesn't have necessarily a key destination. You know what I mean? The way that it sort of pans back and forth across it. Well, one of the things I think about that's true about the movie as a whole and certainly is embodied in the camera work and the vibe of this sequence that you're talking about, Rich, is this hypnotic, dreamlike, surreal quality, right? I mean, don't, wouldn't you think that that applies to this opening sequence? And I think it kind of applies to the whole movie. This movie is taking the audience on our own slow journey into madness step by step. Well, what I think is interesting that you'll see time and time again in this movie is that he is choosing a uh, a trailing shot. He's choosing a shot where the where the protagonist or whatever the character that you're following, like they're heading into the mouth of madness, and the camera is always positioned behind them. It's never leading you. Like the camera is never representing the evil drawing you towards it. You're just following someone as they go into it. We'll see this again with with Danny, with Wendy, with really with everyone in the movie. We're always behind someone as they head into the darkness. Right, right. Well, I mean, sometimes the camera, I'm not sure I'm totally visualizing what you're saying, but I think we're on the same page because the cameraman is often backing up with the steady cam and the characters are walking towards the camera. Like it's not over their shoulder. We're not we're not behind them looking over their shoulder. Sometimes we are, but I mean a lot of these steady cam shots are the cameraman is backing up and they are walking towards the camera. I'm talking about like the tour of the of the kitchens and stuff like that. Well, I mean I guess you make a valid point. Maybe that's something we could look at as we step through it. Because mm-hmm. what what I'm thinking of is the the similarities in the the shot of the, the car and then what you'll see with the with Danny and the big wheel moving mm-hmm. through the hotel, uh, the movement through the the labyrinth. I think there's just a, a lot of times where we're, where we're sort of behind them. But I don't know. Maybe you're right. Maybe there's there's valuability in that in that theory. I'm just I'm trying to. Pick. We're both right, really. I I was just going to say that uh, that I think you're both right. But I do think Rich raises an interesting point that Kubrick does, especially when Danny's on the the tricycle. And I, I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves. But I feel like typically a horror director does position the camera in the other direction so that you don't see what the what the person you're that, that you're following is seeing. And that creates some suspense about what's gonna be around the corner. Kubrick is giving away the game in a way that I think most directors don't. And and it works spectacularly with certainly with the, the first hallway shot. Uh, when we see the when we see the twins, okay, you're definitely getting ahead of ourselves here. <laughs> but uh, but yes, um, it's an interesting thing to think about, and we'll keep tabs on that as we move forward. So uh, yeah, so after all of that, um, which really sets the table, then Jack arrives at this hotel, which seems very normal. There's lots of people. There's activity. There's really no sort of sense of 
creepiness or gothicness. It just seems like um, a, a sort of luxurious but not overly pretentious hotel. Am I incorrect on that? I don't know. It seems seems relatively luxurious to me. I know it's based on the like the the Awani in a mm-hmm. in Yosemite National Park, which I've been to, and has a similar vibe. And oh, also, you've been there. yeah. I, and, uh, I happened to just tonight, Rich, just tonight, like an hour or so ago, look at some photos, I guess they were on Wikipedia, that were indicating the, the key locations in the movie that were based on that hotel. And I was really surprised at how similar uh, they looked, like it was a really good match. So did you, did you, were you aware of this when you were there? When were you there? I was not aware when I was when I was at the Iwani. No, it was a few years ago, and I would say it was kind of like a, like regularly visiting Yosemite at the time. And I I just had a friend who was staying there, and so I went there and we spent an afternoon. I definitely spent a a good portion of that afternoon hanging out in front of the the giant fireplace, which I pretty clearly recognized in in the set for the the Shining now. Um, but at the time, I was not aware of it, so I definitely see the similarities, but. Yeah, I think the Colorado Room, which is one of the big locations here, is is one of them, um, and that that uh, opening lobby that that he initially Jack walks through. Those are the two main locations that are stolen pretty much directly from that that hotel. It's amazing what an amalgamation of different places this movie represents. I mean, it's shot in. England, it's it, there's shots in Washington, in Colorado, in Oregon. It's like a really, it's quite the hodgepodge of locations that contribute to create the overlook. It's so disorienting too. Whenever you see the behind the scenes and you realize that it's a, it's a set. I mean, I'm not sure that every single room in it is a set, but I know that a, a fair portion of it is. Oh well, yes, of course. I mean, for most of these interior shots. Kubrick wanted the luxury of the lighting and to do, you know, 60, 80 shots at any time um, without worrying about the availability of the location or, you know, anyone else needing to be there. So, yeah, I mean, almost everything indoors is is a recreation of these real places um, that sometimes we get a few shots of, you know, mostly exteriors. But anyway, to, to take it back to that original point, I'd say the, the Iwani, like, my, not that it's the same place, but... It has a very similar look and feel, and I'd say it, it felt luxurious being there. It felt very grand. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I didn't mean to make this place seem like the Motel 6, but it's it's not, like, necessarily the most giant and opulent uh, hotel I've ever seen. Like, uh, it, it doesn't seem like a, a shot from Eyes Wide Shut or something like that at that level of, of wealth. Um, yeah. But I do think it's important later, like, you know, what this hotel represents. And I do think there's a decadence to it for sure. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. Hey, Vic, I'm curious. How do you feel like this stacks up compared to the scat brothels in New York? <laughs> <laughs> about the same. Rich, about the same. Uh, and, and again, very expensive. Not just anybody can walk in there. It's, a, it's actually a little more like Eyes is Wide Shut. Uh, I do have a note about how... Again, I'm, I mentioned the opening shots establishing the isolation. That's a lot of the dialogue in Jack's interview is I think Ullman actually uses the word isolation three times as he's sort of explaining the job and explaining what, what goes wrong. And, they, well, sometimes the isolation gets to people and what the old timers call cabin fever. 
it, one of the things that I really paid attention to when I was watching it this time, just because we've been over this so much, and I feel like I'm not going to have a lot to add to the girls in the hallway and, you know, Lloyd at the bar and those scenes that we've already spoken about. So I was really paying attention to the intricacies of the script in this opening act, which I initially felt was is kind of a low point, right? Like when we were talking about the low points and it still is kind of slow, but I really took some time to try and appreciate the deliberateness of the script here that there's almost no scene or dialogue wasted. It's not the most riveting, like horrifying delivery, but every scene is laying out things that are going to come back uh, later on in the film and usually in ways that are scary. So I did sort of appreciate that this is a, it's a very thoughtful script, even in these opening scenes. I'm curious as to your guys take like me watching this, like when Jack Nicholson walks into this interview, I also feel like his performance feels very kind of loose, almost fun. Um, I know one of the, one of the big complaints, but by, by the critics of this film um, is that like Jack like starts the movie crazy and has no arc. I think like I like tried to like touch on it a bit the first couple times we went through it. But the more times I've seen it, like I don't know that I really agree with that criticism. Like I don't feel like he is the same character in this opening scene compared to like where his character goes. So I'm, I'm curious to get y'all's thoughts on that. Ooh, yeah. Well, that's one of my big um, talking points. The big critique of this film has always been, uh, well, not, you know, at the very, very beginning, but the one enduring critique that seems to still have some power or adherence, you know, in an age where The Shining is, which, of course, excluded, is generally considered one of the greatest horror films of all time. The big critique is that he's crazy at the start of the movie. So what's the point? But I just think... It, the argument is so easily refuted when you think about this logically for one second. This is a feature film. Jack Torrance isn't even the protagonist in a traditional sense. It's not really even a traditional protagonist-driven movie because Danny, at five years old, isn't really capable of being a traditional tra- protagonist, but he's as close as we really have to a protagonist, and I'll get into that later when we talk about Danny. But if this was that Hulu TV show... Castle Rock, and we did an entire season about Jack Torrance, sure, we could see his backstory develop, and by the time you get to the point we see him at in the beginning of this movie, you'd probably be no more than a handful of episodes from his grim fate at that point, because this movie is Act 3 of the Jack Torrance story. And not only that, if you only have a feature film's running time, to drive a character to the depths that Jack Torrance plums here, he can't start out as the sanest guy in the world. It's just too far to go if every film of the movie isn't devoted to that task. And we're not a three-hour or four-hour or nine-hour or 12-hour story. We just can't push this character from point A to point Z. we got to start him at point M or N or O, All the same, we do clearly get in the movie, not just the book, you don't have to bring anything into it, we get that Jack has this 800-pound gorilla on his back, you know, dating back to Boulder or wherever that teaching job he lost was, and when he hurt Danny, it's his alcoholism and his rage and his feelings of, you know, his 
low self-esteem and his struggling to write and his struggling with his identity and his self-worth. And we know that it's in his head here at the Overlook. By the time that Wendy brings in breakfast fairly early in the film, he's already, you know, becoming nocturnal and he's having weird dreams. And we know the fuse is, is fraying. I don't want to jump ahead, but we just, we know pretty quickly that something is taking place over days and weeks and months in this guy's head. Just because we don't see all of it on screen doesn't mean that we can't sense what is happening behind the scenes and before we got here and under the surface inside this guy's mind. I I just think that that that, that whole argument doesn't hold water with me. Well, and that's, again, in the dialogue that I was mentioning and the the way that the script uses this time to set all that up, that's what we're getting is Wendy talking about Jack's drinking and injuring Danny, and they're they're giving us a real shorthand for the A to O of Jack Torrance. And I think they do it pretty effectively. I do want to ask, and I can't remember if I brought this up before, but I've always felt like when Wendy is telling that story that Danny was injured a year ago. And after it happens, Jack says, if I ever have another drink, you can leave me. And she says, and he meant it, and he hasn't had any alcohol in five months. And I always felt like that was like there was a gap between Jack saying he was never going to drink again and Jack actually stopped drinking. It never comes up again. But I always thought that must be a deliberate detail and something that's sort of telling about his struggle with his alcoholism. Well, Vic, I mean, I don't want to completely derail this into like, you know, unfortunately we're not going to be able to answer this. But I do know that just tonight I was watching it, a uh, commentary, and it was the scene where he's talking to Lloyd about it. And he says, it was three fucking years ago. Three fucking years ago. So I think there's more than one inconsistency in the timelines here. I can't sort it out right now on the podcast because, you know, it's something we would have to to look at. But, I mean, it could be there's really something there in terms of multiple inconsistencies in the timeline. But the point of it being that I think it's not like Jack flipped some switch when he injured Danny and stopped drinking. It's that's when Dan. That's when he decided he was going to start trying to stop, and has fallen off the wagon a bunch of times leading up to this point. I mean, going into this situation five months sober, especially if it's something you've struggled with for two and a half years, seems really dumb. I mean, I, I, that's mm-hmm. not a criticism. That's not a criticism of the film so much as it is of the character's decision making. Yeah, I'm pretty sure in the same scene he says that he had, he had spent three months doing irreparable harm to himself by not drinking. But but he says it's been three years since he hurt Danny. Five months. Five months since he's had a drop? Yeah, I think he's like, here's to five miserable months. Okay, yeah. All the damage it's done. There you go. There you go. Yeah, I... I, I I believe you, but yeah, it's, it's sort of, yeah, it's not a really like clear timeline. Like, Oh, I hurt Danny. I'm, I'm stopping drinking that day. You know, that's for sure. Like it, it wasn't that easy and clean. The thing, just off the thing that you're pointing out, Vic, that 
I, that I didn't notice watching it, but um, but now that you're saying that, my first thought is that, well, maybe he did quit when he hit Danny. It's just that he relapsed. And also, like, furthermore to your point, John, it's like one explanation for it might be that maybe that wasn't the only incident. But you can certainly tell that Wendy is, is desperately trying to rationalize what happened to this doctor. It's a really uncomfortable scene to watch. But I did, I actually made a note during that scene, too. I find something artificial in a lot of the performances, especially in this section. I feel like Stuart Ullman is is pretty good. But I find the doctor's performance just strange. There's something sort of strained about it. Wendy, I it, it feels like a deliberate choice. Like, it feels like something that Kubrick really wanted from her. But I, I don't know. There, there was nothing terribly natural about the performances until you get to, I feel like, Lloyd and Delbert Grady. Those two performances, all of a sudden the ghosts feel really natural, uh, where everybody else feels a, just a little artificial, a little actory. It's, it's very strange, but that was definitely the impression that well, I had watching I, it. I think you're having a real disconnect with the Stanley Kubrick philosophy. And, you know, you can say what you want about it, but I think he's always clearly believed that people are fake with one another. And he believes in an artificiality of human interaction. And you see this in many of his films, many of his films. And it's sort of the idea that the characters are being artificial with one another. And I, I think that that's appropriate to the circumstances. I mean, certainly with Ullman and Jack in a job interview, we totally understand the parts that they're playing with one another. And I, I honestly, I don't have a big problem with the, the, you know, child psychologist. I think that she's just playing her cards close to the vest and she's being guarded and uh, diplomatic with her reading of this instead of like intensely and passionately connecting with this mother about what may or may not be worrisome about the family dynamic. I think you see, I think it's actually quite subtle. Like you just see in her expression, kind of her, you know, registering, oh, okay, that doesn't sound good. But she doesn't overplay it. So I, I'm really at a loss to, to what you're saying there. I don't I don't see it. I'll also just throw out there, like, I noticed in the, the job interview and the, the scene with the therapist, and even in the car ride, really until they get to the hotel, there's something very weird going on with the with the dialogue pacing, where people ask questions and then they just kind of like, it just sort of hangs in silence for a minute before anyone answers. It's as though everyone has forgotten their lines, like to the point that it is clearly intentional because it's so consistent. And I'm not sure what to make of that. Uh, It's certainly deliberate and stylistic. And so I don't have a problem with it, but I didn't know what I was supposed to take away from it either. Never crossed my mind. I mean, I'm watching, the interview now and I'll watch the drive when we, when we get there. But wow, I, I never, I mean, obviously the film is not only scripted, directed, shot up to, up to 80 to a hundred takes, it's then edited. So any kind of duration of a pause is, is certainly, yeah, as you said, it's, uh, it's planned and it's intentional, but yeah, I don't know what to make of it. Uh, the other thing I wanted to point out before we uh, potentially move on is, um, uh, I'm sure that this is a a, a well noted thing, but the but the fact that that Danny 
after he passes out, is lying on what appears to be the uh, the face of the BJ bear from later in the film. Oh, wow. Well, that's an interesting observation. I did not notice that. So also, what BJ, you BJ bear is amazing. I, I might have to get that on a t-shirt. I, I, I Look, I, I'll just say quickly that this is the best version of the film I've ever seen. Like, a Blu-ray... Like not a sort of shitty print. I've seen it in the theater a couple of times. Not not a VHS or even a DVD. Like the the level of detail in in the in the newer Blu-rays of this movie was somewhat eye-opening. And I'm going to be honest. I'm not sure I'd noticed that the bear had like an open poop shoot on his butt before. Um, <laughs> I just noticed that this time too. I actually I was, I, I was watching my laptop and I zoomed in on. I was like, "Is his? Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's what it is." Yeah, his his ass is is flapping to the wind uh, in his bear costume, which just adds just another whole level to to the sequence. I mean, it. I always knew there was a guy in a bear costume giving head to this other dude, but he he also has a, a butt ready to plow. <laughs> <laughs> oh, one thing that I wasn't entirely sure about that that I just clarified was that Tony is a already sort of welcome in the family. Like Wendy is already aware of Tony and will communicate with Danny as, as Tony. And you know, he calls her Mrs. Torrance. And, you know, he has this sort of remove. They don't have a close relationship, Tony and, and Mrs. Torrance. And it's, 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 it's just interesting that that character is already part of their lives and accepted. Is Tony a separate entity or so, is he just a, a personification of Danny's shining? Well, I, I think that's a great question. Part of me was thinking that he's a self-defense mechanism, obviously. I mean, that would be what your wife would probably say or any number of like sort of that's the psychological approach, right? Is that he's emerged um, maybe a la Session 9 or any number of other horror films that suggest that, you know, these alters emerge. But, I mean, I think this is one of the few movies that really somewhat has the mythology to, to state that it's more than that, that, that Tony is, is an entity in and of, of himself. And it's just really interesting how Tony handles everything. I think Tony almost seems like a coach to Danny. Dan, you know, he's like, I know that Danny is going to ultimately be going to be the one that needs to navigate this. So I'm trying to ease him into this and I'm trying to get him through it. And sometimes I will lie to him if I think that's what he needs to hear in order to just not completely shut down. I think what my wife would say, John, is, oh, my dear God, why are we watching this again? said, <laughs> I was like, I don't know. Yeah, Rich really doesn't have an answer to that question. This keeps happening. I know we don't want to like pull too much from this this source, but I was actually felt pretty satisfied when I saw Doctor Sleep, and and he gives the explanation in that that you know I'm I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, but you know it's that like Tony was like what he called the Shining when he didn't when he was too young to understand what it was. 
I found that to be a pretty acceptable answer and, and watching the film again, like it still made sense to me. I, I like the theory that it's a separate entity, but I, I'm still reading it as a, how is a child interpreting this, this knowing that is far beyond what an adult could handle, uh, let alone a child. I can get behind that in the sense that like, if it's sort of a combination of the two interpretations where, you're you're saying it's a self defense mechanism in that it's his mind translating something and sort of giving it a personality or giving it a voice, but at the same time there's definitely a strong input from from another force, whether or not it's an individual or a consciousness, but that force is is communicating to him in some way and it has to be translated somehow. Perhaps. It's also like, I mean, Tony's like treated as an imaginary friend. And in my experience, like kids can sometimes treat their imaginary friends as though they have some sort of authority over the real world, you know, whether they're like, they're, they're telling you that something has to be done because someone who is not real is demanding it. So like, I guess like what, how do you explain what's going on there where it's like, it's a child like trying to like channel their, something that they can't articulate or something that's a, a power that they feel that they don't have as themselves. But if they put it into someone else's consciousness, then suddenly it has authority. I'm not sure it's that simple. I mean, just in the sense that like Tony has an awareness of what he can or cannot share. And Danny is like, saying, I want to see it. And then Tony is like, okay, and shows it to him. And Danny just fucking crumples like that. There's, there's some kind of intermediary consciousness happening there because I don't give a five-year-old enough credit to build up this entire construct that if he has unfiltered access to the perception of the overlook that he's already sophisticated enough to create his own intermediary to say, well, are you sure you want to see this? Like, I I don't know. Maybe I would buy that with a 35 year old or, you know, whatever. But I mean, I I really think that Danny is so young that one of the conceits of this movie is that this is a child being forced to deal with something um, unimaginable for him. And at first the movie is saying he is so not ready. Like he is just going to fold like a wet paper, you know, towel. And then that makes his ultimate victory so much more satisfying. It's amazing to me. This is almost exactly the conversation we had about Mary Hobbs and Simon in session nine. Mm -hmm. In some ways, you're right. Is this, is this some sort of outside entity or is this a dissociative personality that was spawned by the trauma in this instance of Jack injuring, uh, injuring Danny. I just keep coming back to the fact that he, he's not Mary Hobbs in that he does have this incredible power and he's also five. And so like the, the vulnerability, the innocence that he brings to the table is so clear that I don't think he would generate all of this elaborate stuff. I just, yeah, this is one of the movies where I'm really more on the supernatural side of the fence. 
Well, there's plenty of supernatural to go. Yeah. I think I lean towards I think I lean towards the the more psychological explanation. So you're sort of interpreting stuff that I would normally think of as a psychological construct if it weren't for the fact that we've established that this kid has what the Overlook Hotel calls an extraordinary talent. So What's- but are you suggesting that so the, because the comparison that I draw is to something like Pet Cemetery, where the dad is having these visions of the the person the the person that he lost that's like a ghost trying to communicate warnings to him, you know, essentially mm-hmm. from the future or whatever. So is the idea that Tony is a spirit of some kind? Well, I, I, have I don't to, think there's I don't think there's anything to support that. I, I think that I think that Tony is the personification, like Rich said, the personification of this ability. It's a it's a dam that's built up to protect little innocent five year old Danny from this this information that would that would absolutely crush him if he was made aware of it. Yeah, I'm open to it. I, I just happened to like look up at my screen, and it was Wendy explaining. Um, but the doctor had asked, "Well, when did Tony start talking to Danny?" And he said, "She said that it was when they put him in nursery school, and then he had an injury, so we kept him out for a while." So I think the movie is definitely strongly drawing the line that it wasn't connected to trauma. I'm just going to throw that out there. Um, but yeah, I, I hear what you're saying that like, it could be a, um, a means of dealing with extrasensory perception, but yeah. All right. It, it can be both supernatural and psychological. Mm-hmm. Right. But I just oh. want to say it's not directly tied to his dad abusing him. I think that that's fairly clear in the scene. Rich, don't, don't try to make peace between us. <laughs> right, John, John and I are going to settle this once and for all in the parking lot of a Walmart, like civilized people. <laughs> Can it be a Hooters parking lot? <laughs> that sounds more hey, civilized. Yeah, I, yeah, I really, really did want to come in and like be the heel tonight, but I'm. Uh, oh, you will know. be. I don't, don't feel like I don't feel like I quite like I don't I don't feel like I quite have it. I mean, look, I went into watching this with like an open mind. Oh, Again. right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Come on. I go in, and I'm like, well, they seem to see something in it. So, like, I guess I should give it another shake. Rich, I, I can't even begin to imagine your perception of this film. Maybe you can help me with it in the course of, of, of this podcast. But uh, it just it, – it's inconceivable to me. And I all I can say – is that were we to continue this tournament all the way to the end and 25 years from now we've looked at every conceivable genre of horror, I can still pretty much tell you that The Shining would win for me. It would get, it would have my vote. It's always whenever any human being has ever asked me what my favorite horror movie of all time is, my go-to answer, and I'm not going to say like I'm not open to anything else, but my answer is The Shining. So, yeah, you're you're not going to convince me, but we'll, well see. Well, John, my answer is Halloween H2O. So, <laughs> I knew fuck that. You. Yeah. Yeah. 
Uh, I do. I do just want to point out, and I'll I'll try and put this up on the Facebook page. There's a there's a fabulous meme floating around on Facebook of uh, the still of Wendy when she's talking to the doctor, and it says the most suspenseful thing in The Shining is the ash on Wendy's cigarette. <laughs> it it is a pretty prodigious ash. It's, yeah, it's and and now every time I watch the scene, all I can do is watch it, and you know. See if I can will it to uh, fall onto the chair and catch fire. <laughs> well, I happen to be watching the scene where they're driving up to the hotel and they're talking about the Donner party. And I think this does kind of tie into something that I, I wanted to bring up. So I'll throw it out here. Here, I, I will throw it out now. It's the idea of kind of cannibalism and capitalism. One of the ideas offered to the audience here in this scene, as Jack explains it, is that people are pushed to do terrible things to survive, like the starving Donner Party. But then the movie makes a huge deal out of the unlimited food at the Overlook. It's basically proclaiming this is not one of those stories. This is not a tale of survival, but of suicide, essentially. Madness and murder-suicide. It's what happened with Grady, and it's what happens with Jack. You are not let off the hook at the Overlook by any lack of supplies that would motivate man to kill man. You bring the evil to the mountains. Even if a greater evil is already there and ready to draw it out of you and direct it to their own purposes. And I think, though, as a metaphor, which is obviously more what this movie would be interested in, it's it's what the propagators of propaganda and hate do to get their pawns into play is to take their resentments and their insecurities and their jealousies and channel them in the direction they want them to go. And I think that's exactly what the Overlook does. So just throwing that out there. Have you you been reading Noam Chomsky again? This capitalism and murder shit. <laughs> I've I never, think, I've never been a huge uh, noticer of this in the movie, but dude, this time it really hit me. I think it's a, it's a fascinating observation, and I, I was with you ninety percent of the way in until I thought of the fact that you are right. Except there is one provision that they do go out of their way to point is completely absent from the Overlook Hotel, and that's alcohol. But the ghost gives him all the alcohol or the, 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 the experience of alcohol. And I can tell you this, as a man who likes to drink, I watched with somehow extra scrutiny this time. When Jack takes that first drink of the ghost booze, I can tell you it delivered what he wanted it to deliver <laughs> from his face. Well, John, I'm going to I'm going to take this one step further and just say that this is the movie. This movie is about a poor, unemployed school teacher, driven insane by the the decadence and opulence that the uh, the the wealthier class has been living in for centuries. Apparently, that they took away from the Native Americans. And uh, realizing that on May 1st he was going to have to give it up, he instead decided to freeze to death in the maze so that he would never have to leave. That's what I think this is about. 
dude, I mean, I, 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 you sound like you're joking, but I don't, I don't totally disagree <laughs> with that reading. I, I don't. It's, I, it's, I mean, the class stuff really is sort of interesting. A lot of what comes up in the ghosts in the ghost imagery really sort of reminds me of the haunting of Hell House, where the the, the whole backstory of the house was this wild, debaucherous, rich. Uh, 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 people doing terrible things to each other in the name of pain and pleasure and and the imprint that that left on this space i mean there is something in horror to what a what a party of rich people completely devoid of any consequences for their actions will do i mean that's the mask of the red death well, Vic, I'm glad you brought that up because you guys are kind of bringing me through like the, the few sort of talking points that I had prepared. But the Native American genocide is actually one of the big things that I wanted to talk about. And that's not always been something I really strongly associated with this movie. But watching it this time, I was really struck by the sense that this doesn't seem like an optional reading that's just there if you want it. I feel like it's actually closer to a, a critical interpretation of the movie because there's just so many markers here that suggest that the Overlook represents the diseased soul of the America that took this place from its rightful inhabitants by force. From Stuart Ullman talking about the Native American attacks being repelled during the construction of the hotel – to the thousands upon thousands of gallons of blood pouring down that hallway, it seems clear that we're not just kind of dealing with the ennui of the ennui of the jet setters who stayed here. The magnitude of the blood on the hands involved with this hotel, it transcends mere decadence or a black widow, which I'll get to with perhaps the woman in the bathtub. And it also kind of dovetails with the idea that when something happens, it can leave a, a trace of itself behind, which is what Halloran tells Danny. Obviously, by that logic, the Holocaust would leave one hell of a trace. And while the entirety of the Native American genocide did not occur on this spot, the hotel does put a target on its back with a sort of manifest destiny that it represents, and its smug catering to the whims of the wealthiest classes, the decadent, depraved wealthiest classes, which is what we see from all of the ghosts of those people. And it's all coming at the expense of everyone below them. So I think that's very much a critical theme of, of the film. I just know we're talking about a serious film when we've mentioned Noam Chomsky, Louis Bunuel, and Ennui. <laughs> That's how you know you're getting you're getting a real master class in film criticism. Folks. It is a serious film. I mean, it's it is, incredibly it is, it is, serious film. I want to be clear. I, that's a that's a funny thing for me to say. I don't think you're wrong, and I think that this discussion of the again the, the decadence of the wealthy class in the way that it's infected this place is a real theme of this, and I think the fact of Jack's state and you even see when he when he talks a lot about what do you want me to go back to go back to boulder and shovel driveways or work mm -hmm. in a car wash uh, i think that that there is a picture of life 
in this hotel that is seductive to the point of madness to him. He does like the way that he's treated, right? Your money's no good here, Mr. Torrance. Uh, I think that that all is part of, of luring him in. I think that's a brilliant point, and I'm not going off any kind of notes here, but I'm just going to say that Jack is a clearly uh, an overeducated loser in the sense that he is smart enough and educated enough to understand that he might belong or be able to hang with the, the higher classes, but he's never had the money in his pocket. He's never had the family influence. He's never had the political or educational connections or professional connections. And yeah, he is a victim of his demons. He really is kind of a loser. You know, he's fucked up his opportunities due to pride and and lack of self-control and, you know, his urges and his ego have, have been stumbling blocks for him every step of the way. And so he's found himself failing at life. And, you know, guys, if you can't relate to this guy, I'm so happy for you. I really am. I'm so happy for you, but I can, you know, and I understand the, the sort of helpless, uh, impotent rage that he has at, at like where he is in life and how he deserves more, but he hasn't gotten it. And it's just, I think it's very, like nothing to me about that character does not ring true. I, I think that there's real human experience in this character. And yeah, he's a type, but he's a type that, that is out there. And, and it feels real to me. I paid special attention to their apartment in the opening scenes and just noticed mm-hmm. sort of behind Wendy when she's talking to the doctor, there's a bookshelf that is piled high with with books like they're like but they're not displayed like they're just stacked there so you can't even really see what they are and it really did and it and it it just feeds into this kitchen like it's not it's it's not a very nice apartment it seems adequate but i looked at all those books and just thought that's it it's a guy who reads a lot he's clearly very intelligent i mean i think you're i think you're right in that that's what that's what sort of brought that back to me it's somebody reads a lot, but doesn't have like a fancy bookshelf to keep it on. Like he's just got his, he's just got his books piled up in the corner as an English, you know, as an English teacher and an aspiring writer. Uh, I think that's something that he probably prides himself on is being well read, but they're just piled up in the corner of this crappy Boulder apartment. I'm really glad you brought that up, Vic, because that was an observation that I made when I saw this film in Portland um, on an extremely rainy, dangerous night where I'm bouncing my car down from Olympia, Washington to Portland um, over filled potholes. And my car is hydroplaning left and right, both ways, by the way. Um, and I'm not sure I'm even going to get us home, uh, my sister and my girlfriend, home safely that night. But we went down to watch a shitty print of The Shining in Portland. And that was the first time I noticed the books on the shelf. And I'm really surprised that this hasn't come up. But it was really important and apparent to me that none of the books are lined up, uh, are standing up straight. All of the books that we see on the shelves in that apartment are sideways. And I think the very clear intention is that these, this is a, a disordered mind already before he, he goes to 
uh, the overlook that, that, there's something telling about you don't even have your books standing up. Um, so their spines are all, uh, vertical. I, I, I thought that was very important when I saw that movie, you know, in the nineties, uh, and noticed that. John, are you sure you don't want to tell the listeners about the hitchhiker you killed with your car that <laughs> night? Thanks for the ride lady. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't. I couldn't decide whether to go Creep Show two or uh, I know what you did last summer with that, but I see that you made that decision for me. So thank you. <laughs> well, this is a good segue to grab another uh, beverage real quick, if that's cool with you all. Here, here, nothing says another beverage like a dead itch. <laughs> <laughs> Let's not get into that, Vic. <clears throat> sorry, sorry, God, sorry. I didn't know to talk about that. You're, you're going to edit that out, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right, be right back. All right, as I crack my traditional sculpin, which is foaming up, so I had to improvise and drink the fuck out of that thing right away. I am drinking Chardonnay with ice because it was warm. <laughs> that's that's the class way I'm starting this evening. I do have a beer. I only have one beer chilled, and it's a it's a nine point four percent. And we're oh, we're still in real one of this movie. So <laughs> I uh, I think I have to get a little further in before I crack that open. Pace yourself, Rich. Pace yourself. I don't know, Rich. If you're going to drink Chardonnay with ice, I, I think we have to talk about Memoirs of a Geisha or something. Doesn't this translate into a book club then? Uh, you know what, Vic? If you want to change the topic and talk about Memoirs of a Geisha, I would welcome it. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Just breaks my heart, Rich. Breaks my heart. <laughs> I fully appreciate that there are these big like macro themes in this movie that everyone really gets off on. And I appreciate them, too. Don't get me wrong. It just doesn't blow me out of the water that the way that it does with you guys. I can't even think of our of our fluffy four off the top of my head. But, I mean, I feel like they all are dealing with broader themes in a way. And I think some of them do much more specific and, and cutting analysis of human psychology, maybe not society at writ large the way that, that this movie is trying to, but I also just don't feel like this movie is saying a ton about these big themes that, that you guys are, are talking about so far. I found the most interesting topic that we've, that we've tackled is the idea of like, what is Tony for, uh, for Danny? Like, I think that's a, a pretty interesting thing to parse out, but as far as like the, the, the wealthy and the, and the native Americans, and I agree, it's all built and it's all built well into this. And I think that you guys are, setting forth some pretty sound theories. I just don't know that it adds up to a whole lot in the grand scheme of this, this movie other than to say like, well, rich people can be, can be shitty and Americans are living on blood money. Like no shit. None of that has ever been pivotal to my love of the movie in the, um, you know, 40 years that I've been aware of the film. It's just more something that I think, I'm, I'm latching on to now, but yeah, I would not make an argument about like the power of this movie based on its stunning critique of manifest destiny or something like that. I think the movie works on a much more visceral and pure cinematic level. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to argue with you too much there, but if you want to talk about Danny and Tony, I, I do think that there's something else I wanted to bring up there and maybe you'll find that more, provocative or 
fruitful for discussion. Something that I got this time was that the movie is playing a game with the audience that's actually pretty traditional and narratively sound in the sense that Danny has a clear character arc. He's, he's a child, even a baby. And I touched on this before. He's not up to the challenge at first. We have several indicators of this and the audience isn't going to judge him. I mean, he's fucking five, but there's a very clear progression that takes place aided by Tony where Danny processes and begins to understand what's going on around him, what's going on with his dad, what he's up against in the hotel. Even the haters of this movie, you know, like that, that, that talk about, oh, well, Jack was crazy from the start. Nobody, to my knowledge, says that they don't buy Danny's heroic action in Act 3 and how he outsmarts his dad and and the evil and, you know, in the hedge maze. I think everybody sort of loves that. And I think part of what makes it so satisfying is that the kid does seem to go into a shell to be completely vulnerable every time that the darkness comes at him, time after time in this movie, until suddenly he's not. He steps up. And it's interesting that Tony is driving up to a point late in the film, which feels very bleak. But at the same time, Tony's uh, red rum, red rum, red rum, etc. It, it, it saves a sleeping Wendy and himself from being massacred because, you know, she's she's asleep and vulnerable. And he he wakes her up and gets them ready for Jack's attack. But see, then Danny takes over from there. It's not Tony in the end. It's Danny. So, yeah, for me, I think Tony is kind of a real thing and a self-defense mechanism. He's a plot element and even a character. And he's also a metaphor for the self-defense mechanisms that people develop in real life. I think he serves his purpose. But at the end of the day, it's up to you, man. Tony can't save you. And I think that works both dramatically and thematically and in terms of the relevance of this to survival in real life. John, you know what I love is your hater voice. (laughs) (laughs) And I feel like we've, I feel like I've heard that applied multiple times throughout this process. And it is, it is truly the voice of a hater. Uh, Rich, just rich, just so you know, that's what you sound like. I was going to say, what's its tone? Is it moneyed? Is it a, Like, how would you describe the hater voice's background? You know, it's so subconscious for me. I'm going to have to, like, start analyzing this. Thanks for bringing it to my attention. (laughs) I'd say the the hater was was born uh, outside Houston, uh, probably went to UT and then moved to L.A. and started a career in television, probably been nominated for an Emmy. So any any thoughts on that, guys? (laughs) I I mean, I, I will say just to – I don't think this is exactly what you're what you're fishing for here, John. Yes, by and large, I, I'd agree with you. When you described that, the first thing that came to mind for me is there's a lesser film here or a lesser story, I guess, where Danny harnesses the power of The Shining and then uses it to summon something that can vanquish Jack. And instead, you're right. He actually goes the opposite direction. Like it's the very human side of Danny that, that ultimately outsmarts Jack. And so that's a that is actually a, an ending and an arc that is 
that is complex and surprising in how sort of like, you know, rude in reality it is. It doesn't go the Marvel movie, you know, typical horror movie route. So I, yeah, I, I'd, I'd agree with you. And I think that there's something to be said for that in making a novel story. Little Oedipal too. And I assume he marries Wendy after, uh, after his job. <laughs> Well, I love that you brought that up, Rich, because it didn't totally register or it wasn't something I was going to make a big deal out of. But I think you've you put your finger on something that's amazing about this movie is that it would have been such a misstep to have him, you know, make Jack's head explode all the scanners or something, use his gift. And because that that has no meaning or utility or lesson or value to any anyone in real life because we can't just oh well I'll just use the shining and I'll take care of whatever my abuser is and I think the idea that this kid is just fucking clever and he memorized that maze because he had nothing else to do and that's that's how real kids can think when they're not in school or something like that every day he went into that maze or however many however many times and he he had it down, and Jack being as distracted and you know so concerned with his work and all that he needs to do, I wouldn't be surprised if he he went in there once and he didn't pay attention when he went in there. And I think that there's something very real about that. And there's something very accessible and applicable about that. It's so empowering, I think, to kids really to see what what Danny does and that it isn't magic powers and it isn't superpowers or his magic imaginary friend that saves him. It's just him being clever and resourceful and having paid attention and been smart. And I I think that's tremendous. And I think that's honestly at at least 30% of the power of the ending. And I don't mean that just for me personally. I think objectively, I think that's part of why people other than you have loved this movie for, for all these years. John, I think there's something to that. And I, I will say that I also think over the process of analyzing this movie multiple times for this podcast, I have come to appreciate the ending that Kubrick concocted for this. It is not, I think one of the great endings of horror films like the thing or uh, I have a particular affinity for Prince of Darkness, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, the uh, the Phil Kaufman version. It doesn't quite land in that pantheon of great movie endings, but it is certainly an improvement upon what Stephen King envisioned, which is not quite what you're talking about, but also definitely a direction if you went, okay, we're gonna we're gonna try and fix this. Uh, let's maybe that would be the direction you would go. He went a very, if you'll forgive the pun, a very cold, uh, cynical way with it. And but I feel like it works. Uh, I feel like certainly I wish he could have taken a stab at the ending for it, chapter two, because I think that that would be a better way to go with a lot of these Stephen King stories. I haven't read the book in a long time, but in the commentary I just listened to, I'm pretty sure that in the original book. Dick Halloran saves Wendy and Danny. And I obviously I knew that like, this is very different and that he's unceremoniously killed. So, I mean, that makes sense to me. But when you think about what that represents is that Dick came and, and just, you know, flat out saved them 
okay, so what does that mean? What does that mean about Danny's agency and his heroism and, and sort of what is the takeaway there versus this movie, which I had originally thought it's just sort of a cold, fuck you, what happens to Dick, right? I think we've discussed that in the past, that we, we get this really long, tedious sequence of Dick on his way to to come save them. The cavalry is coming, and then he's dispatched with an axe you know, moments after arriving at the hotel. But But weirdly... And I keep saying this, that watching it this time, X, Y, and Z, well, guys, we made a pledge that we were going to consume some weed for this viewing. And by God, I did. Did you? Yes. Well, I took an edible and I watched it a few nights ago. So I don't know, you know, take that for what what, what it is. I, I had the distinct impression this time that Halloran's sacrifice is not in vain in this film. It's much less, I don't know, if patriarchal is the word, but it's, it's less like cut and dried that he saves the day. But Jack was about to murder Wendy with an ax. If the chef had not shown up to distract him, even though she had just cut his hand, Jack was moments away from getting into that bathroom and with him in it with an ax and Wendy with her kitchen knife, I'm not betting on Wendy in that fight because that door was just about chopped down. She can't get out the, out the window. Danny can't drive the snowcat. So if Jack kills Wendy right there, because Halloran's not there to draw him away, I don't think either of them make it out alive. So while that whole long extended sequence with Halloran making his way up from Florida does read as kind of a fuck you to the audience, and, and a cinematic repudiation of the, the cavalry is coming trope, I think if you connect the dots, Halloran does actually save Wendy and Danny, so I think it's actually kind of perfect. Well, I certainly wouldn't describe it as perfect. Yeah, that's but, that's <laughs> but from a from a narrative perspective, he what he really does, yes, he does sort of rescue them from that scene, but he also delivers the snowcat. They needed a snowcat. They needed somebody to deliver one, and that's fine. We didn't have to spend all that time with him. And watching it, watching it this time, uh, everybody take a drink. Everybody take a bong hit. Um, <laughs> I am increasingly convinced that Kubrick just needed a cutaway. I think that he didn't want to spend the, the whole movie in the overlook there are times when he just needs to, to cut away to something so that he can come back later on, or it's a way to get out of a scene so that he can progress the story to something else. And so I really think that's why he keeps cutting back to, to Dick Halloran. I, there's no, really no other explanation unless he felt that the movie was just too short. The, the cuts that Kubrick makes, like in terms of, you know, where you would normally use cutaways to like, to like jump through time or be able to like progress in the story without actually dragging you through the details of it. He deals with definitively in terms of like the, the mm-hmm. title parts for the days, which jump days at a time throughout the course of the, of the movie. He ends scenes basically in the middle of conversations um, consistently. Like he is not afraid to cut when he needs to cut for the sake of pacing and jump you to wherever the hell he wants you to without any sort of explanation. So 
I can't say that I think that there's a good argument that like Kubert just feel, felt like he needed a a cutaway. If anything, the, the cutting to Halloran is doing the opposite of what you're talking about. It's actually like prolonging the, the the film. Like it's adding time to it, not just from a running time point of view, but also from a story point of view. It has a weird sort of self-sabotage quality to it. I'm not sure I, I can explain it. I don't have a, a better explanation, but that one doesn't ring true to me. Well, but you don't think that like just to get out of the overlook – Kubrick didn't want this to be a, a, a chamber piece just in an exceptionally large chamber. That he guess, wanted some sort of cutaway to something that was outside of the Overlook universe. Why would you not want to be, be trapped inside the Overlook in this movie? Isn't that exactly what you want the audience to feel? Like, what, what about this story like, makes you think that he would want to have more space for the audience to, to breathe? Like, don't you want to feel as trapped as all of our characters are? My counter argument to that would be, and I'm and I'm now sort of talking out of my ass a little bit, so I, I, I understand this won't hold up and, Rich, that you're intent on being the heel and will pounce on any flaws <laughs> in my argument. <laughs> but Kubrick is not a horror director. He's not. That's not his, that's not his yeah. thing. And so I think... If you told me that John Carpenter was making this movie, he doesn't want to get out of there. If Wes Craven's making this, he doesn't want to get out of there. But coming off of 2001 and The Clockwork Orange and Barry Lyndon, like these are big, expansive stories. And so I I think he's nervous about just being in one location for two hours. I'm just curious, and this this is purely exploratory. (laughs) Let's like ride out the whole bourgeoisie Native American thread of this. So what is potentially being said by the fact that the only black character in this movie, who is also referred to by, by Jack using racial epithets uh, later in the film and the, and the, the, the ghosts for that matter, they talk about him disparagingly. He is showing up midway to try to save things, but then Jack still dispatches them. Like, if we want to, like, take this whole movie as, like, a cultural commentary, is there is there anything to that? Or could there potentially be any sort of, like, like larger, like, societal, like, commentary that they're making? No. No is the answer, Rich. <laughs> is the way that Halloran dies, like, some racial comment? I'm, I'm not going to necessarily say say that but i i do think that the the way that it's the scene that you're talking about where the the hotel was representing this deeply seated white privilege and we're tying back into the genocide of the native americans and of course goes hand in hand with racism towards african americans and black people in general, one would imagine. The fact that the Overlook advocate, its embodiment, its agent, this uh, the Grady spirit, says a N-word in this, in this very, like, deliberate way. And then, like, Nicholson kind of, like, echoes it in this, like, almost comedic, exaggerated... 
like he's not entirely buying it, but maybe it, it is again tying back into his sort of frustrated, the classic middle-aged white male who feels he's lost opportunities to X, Y, and Z. Maybe there's something there. I don't know, but but it, it's it feels very satirical to me. The moment and and Stanley Kubrick is an extremely satirical director. I think if you've seen any of his other movies, you would agree with me in, in that regard. Back to the idea of Kubrick needing a cutaway because he doesn't believe the audience wants to be cooped up in this hotel and we need to get out of there for some kind of tension release. Actually, no, I, I disagree with you, Vic, there. I, I, I think that this is a incredibly cruel and cold film that, that has no empathy for how tense the audience is in the theater. He's not worried about test audiences or something like that. Anything along those lines, I don't think was a factor. I I think that it really is sort of a nasty deconstruction of a familiar cinematic trope. I really do believe that we, we set up this character from the beginning that he's in the know and he's empathetic, and he has a degree of power as someone who has The Shining. And I'm talking about Halloran, and the idea is that that is a, a ace in the hole, perhaps for Danny, and that that he can come and save the day, especially if you've read the book. So I, I really think that the fact that. We build this up and it's the race against time as he's traveling and he's going through all these obstacles and is he going to get there in time or is he going to be delayed or, you know, is the past going to be snowed in and he can't get there or whatever. I really think it's because the audience is supposed to be counting on him saving the day. And then it's such a, it's a gut punch when he arrives and he's, he's killed and he apparently has failed. And I think that's exactly the the effect. It's a it's a classic the rug being pulled out from under the audience. Our expectations are being used against us. And I think it works great, even even though it's like a fuck you. It really is. It's Janet Lee and Psycho, basically. Yeah, in the sense of it's playing on every expectation that a exactly. thousand other movies have have inculcated in us. We're setting you up to think that this character is going to be significant in a way that they're not. I mean, I'd say if that was the goal, I feel like the movie failed because I just don't feel like you are invested in that character. At least I, I wasn't. But it's uh, not about him. It's about his uh, impact on, on the characters that you care about. He's the cavalry. Yes, but that's where I feel like it's like Janet Lee and Psychos is not an apt comparison because that's a movie where you're led to believe that this is your protagonist for an extended period of time only to have them killed off. I agree. It's not, it's not a perfect apples to apples. Comparison. Of course not. And it doesn't have to be. Why, it's more, it's more like John said, it's playing on the audience's expectations. I, that might be, it might be something to that. Now, again, I still question it as a, a valid storytelling element in that what you do is take what is supposed to be a very tense film, slow it down while we watch Dick Halloran drive through the snow uh, you know, and land on a plane and talk on the phone, you know, and secure a car and secure a snowcat <laughs> and all that kind of stuff. Like it didn't need you have if it's going to work, you have to do all that. 
But I don't think that actually works. That just slows the film down. We talked about this, I mean, every time we've talked about this movie, and I've said that if I have to pick out a sequence that I don't like, I mean, that is the sequence. So, Although, I do just want to point out that one of the things that is notable about it is that Scatman Crothers is great. He's enormously likable. I love the line when he when he tells the the guys at the the forest station or whatever that they, the, those people turned out to be completely unreliable assholes. <laughs> uh, I mean, he's he he makes it work as well as anybody could have. And so I, we I think we have talked about this a lot. We haven't talked a lot about his actual performance, well, which he, I yeah. think is terrific. Yeah, he's fantastic. Apparently, he was a friend of Jack Nicholson's, and not knowing what he was getting into, he lobbied Jack to to get him a part in the movie, and immediately regretted it. As someone who's you know not classically trained, and apparently, he may have been put through the most takes of any documented movie sequence ever ever made. In his ice cream conversation with Danny, apparently 140 takes were done of the main shot of, of Dick, and he was um, crying at, at, at the end. And the Steadicam operator, who's the source of this intel I'm giving you from a commentary, said that he, he, he wasn't entirely sure that um, Scatman was actually crying or he just decided to turn on the waterworks to get out of this situation. <laughs> but, but Kubrick was just making his life a living hell with the number, the, you know, literally hundreds of takes on, on that sequence. So he was not prepared for it in the way that Nicholson was, that was hard on him, but I think that he does a fantastic job in the movie, and he's completely convincing in everything that he does. So uh, there's a, a Washington Post article from 1987 that was really prompted by the release of uh, Full Metal Jacket. And the, the writer says in here, The Shining is also about America's current racism, particularly against blacks. Indian ghosts and Indian culture have only a mute presence in the film. Uh, but we do get to know and like and then see murdered a powerful black character uh, in Chef Halloran, the only person to die in the film other than the protagonist, villain, and victim, Jack. The murdered black man lies across a large Indian design on the floor, a victim of similar racist violence. It certainly sounds like there there might be some more substance to that idea. And, it, and it's interesting because you, it does draw that comparison between the racism uh, that that we see and, and sort of hear from the Overlook Hotel toward Halloran and what we've been talking about, about the, the Native American influence. And apparently they mentioned in this article as well that Stuart Ullman's line about the hotel being built on an Indian burial ground and having to repel Indian attacks is not in the book. That's something that Kubrick added to the film. Yeah, which is notable for sure. And I think it's notable that... Grady, you know, the agent of the hotel, could have just said, your son has warned someone. He's bringing in an an outside influence to meddle in the situation. They didn't need to drop the N-word. They didn't need to bring racism into it. And I think the fact that they do is is significant. And I, I don't think it's an accident, and I don't think it's 
meaningless at all. Well, I think it ties into as well the classism stuff that we've been talking about. Mm-hmm. This is how the people who who stayed at the Overlook Hotel and did these right uh, did all these these kinds of things there. Um, this is how they viewed different races. This is how they viewed the Native Americans. This is how they viewed African Americans. That really does seem to be, as we discuss it, a more and more prevalent theme. One hundred percent. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the whole sort of privileged class it is also represented, as I hope we'll get to shortly, in the woman in the bathtub and her sort of implied backstory. Now, let me just because we're on this subject, and I know John, you're going to yell at me for getting ahead of us, subs, and I, I, I just don't care. You son um, of a bitch! Yeah, how could you get ahead um, of it? We just talked about the end of the movie at length. Yeah, <laughs> fair enough. I did find myself, and I do find myself increasingly uncomfortable with the idea that the decadence that is portrayed as having taken place here. We're talking about the classes and the rich people are here doing whatever the, whatever the fuck they want. That's kind of symbolized by this homosexual activity. That that's the idea is like, do you see what they were doing here? Now, granted the guy's wearing a bear suit. And so that, you know, I mean, it's not, it's not explicitly sort of homophobic, but isn't that kind of the the implied impression that we're supposed to get is that these are the kinds of terrible things that were going on here in the past? This is just how depraved they were. Exactly. Yeah. I think you're you're right to point out that the scenario has a desperate, banal, and exploitive quality to it that that goes beyond mere homophobia but i i can't say that diane johnson the screenwriter i believe um and kubrick were devoid of homophobia or something like that i i can't definitively say that times were 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 different there but i don't really think that the movie is drawing a distinction between the genocide of the Native Americans and and clearly, I think, an implied repudiation of racism towards blacks that they would say, oh, but gays are, now those, those people, they're, they're terrible and they represent, you know, moral you know, turpitude or whatever you want to use. Depravity. Depravity. I, I mean, I think de- de- depraved is, is, is the right word for it. But I would just say, like, I think you're right. Like, I think you're right that it's not a conscious decision. Yeah. But that in 1980, if you were looking for just a knee-jerk symbolism for sexual depravity in the wealthy class, that that might be what you go to. A shorthand. Exactly. And the, But the fact that the guy is also wearing this bizarre bear pig, man bear pig costume. <laughs> but they, it's still like it's you could sort of gloss over it because it's still depraved. Like it might not it's not you know, it's not necessarily the fact that it was homosexual, even though that was probably part of the impulse, at least, even if it was subconscious, in writing that scene, but it still plays today because what the fuck is that guy wearing? Like we can still make fun of furries. That's still depraved. <laughs> and then yeah, ten years from now, maybe not. But <laughs> exactly, you know, I mean, and again, you might you might be right. But I did. I, I have found myself because we've come back to it over and over again, and because 
it is such a just a really weird, unsettling image. And because I zoomed in and saw that the butt flap is open on the man bear pig suit, <laughs> like we do keep coming back to it. But that the, there is an underlying implication of look at how sick and weird these people are. Part of it is the suit, but part of it is the homosexuality, I think. Vic, I'm, I'm basically on board with your interpretation of it. I think Thank we're you. we're missing the point if our reading of this movie is that it's in favor of conservative nas- white nationalist kind of themes because we, whether we can split hairs that people were squeamish and and could like you know resort to the low hanging fruit of depicting homosexuality as depravity. Okay, you know I'll give you that, but I think the general spirit and soul of this movie is saying that the that there's something really wrong with the overall patriarchal government of um the United States and and sort of even in an international sense of just this kind of yeah it's more class and wealth than than race but it's it's all about the idea of we can do no wrong because the golden rule is that the gold makes the rules basically you know, which I think uh, is applicable. I agree with that. Again, I'm not. I'm not suggesting that this is somehow an underlying theme or anything. But I'm just saying, and also obviously, sort of a product of its time. Right. But it is. It is worth noting that it's a product of its time. Like of I think that that was that was the shorthand for sexual depravity in 1980. Yeah. No. I mean, I, I don't think it's not worth noting. Absolutely. Uh, I'm glad you check, you check, did check out check out cruising. You know what I mean. Right, right. I, I just I'm, I happen to be watching in the in the film um, a scene that I noticed very clearly last night, and I want to bring up because it kind of blows my mind, and I have no answer for this, and I don't know what to make of it. When Danny is first drawn to room two three seven, he pauses at that door and he touches the doorknob, and it appears to be locked. It's not open, and later when he actually goes in, there's an actual key in the lock, opening it and opening the door. So in some way, something or someone is inviting him into the room. But at this point in the movie, it's not, is it not capable yet? Or is it just biting its time? But the more I don't know what to do with part is that we get a brief, but more than subliminal flash of the twins here when he touches the doorknob, which apparently causes him to leave and now the twins appear to be in their hallway. They're not within room 237. So it, it's kind of a head-scratcher for me because I hadn't really realized or remembered any association between the twins in room 237. I don't think any obvious connection is drawn. I, I just i am wondering, can you guys help me, why would Danny see the twins in that moment rather than the woman in the bathtub or something more you know specific to that room? I, I got nothing. I had the same question. There are times where some of the imagery in this movie hits the mark, and there are times where it feels like a lot of impactful imagery sort of like thrown together in a, in a little more of a, of a cut-and-paste kind of style. Um, this is one of those moments that, that struck me as, as that. And I'm not saying that that's true across the board, but, um, yeah, I'm with you. I, I couldn't make the connection. I was, like, trying to piece it together in my head of if, if – the you know the the black widow in the in the room is 
part of the same narrative that the the twins and Grady are, but it doesn't seem like she is. The interpretation I would give off the top of my head is that really the only vision, the only way that the hotel speaks to Danny is through the kids. And so what those twins represent is management. They are for, for Danny what Lloyd is to Jack. And so when he touches that door handle, what he's feeling is whatever is in the hotel and that that presents to him as the twins. Am I correct that he doesn't, he doesn't really have any other vision. He doesn't, he has the blood coming out of the elevator doors and that sort of thing, but doesn't really have any other visions inside the hotel except for the two little girls. Is that correct? I think so. It's the little so, girls are definitely the main thing that he sees start to finish and the, and the blood. And so the hotel seeks to communicate with him through those twins. Basically, they are the other children there. The other thing that I just want to note, because this is, and this is literally in my notes, is that my kids would also immediately try to open the door to room 237 <laughs> if I told them, don't go in there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> But, I mean, I think it's worth noting that he can't. Like, it, they could have just let him open that door. And, I mean, I don't know what would have happened or what that, you know, would have, the movie have been over. But it's notable that the door doesn't open when he tries to open it here at this point. I, I think that there might also be an argument to the fact that this is a, this is one evil with many faces. Yeah, And so it's not necessarily about drawing a connection between the woman in 237 and, and the twins. It's that they're all part of the same entity. They're all part of the others um, that they that they speak of. And so I think that there's kind of like a, a hive mind happening here in that Danny's having a flash of the, the evil within the building. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense in that I would very much logically buy into an interpretation of this that individuality is lost when you succumb to this thing and that the house as 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 Lloyd puts it when it buys his drink is really what matters and like this is not a confederation of of states and autonomous beings that the the ghosts here are you know, more tortured echoes than planning, plotting, aspiring, you know, more like actual human beings that, that have their own personal agendas or something like that. I, I think that, that that does make sense to me, Rich, that you're assimilated and you're only echoes of your of your own personal desires and your pains and stuff. But yeah, you don't really get a lot of uh, agency and, and control and to pursue your own desires and agendas. When, once you're a victim of this thing, you're just, yeah, you're more just, you know, part of the fucking haunted house at that point. Well, and going back to what I was saying about the deliberate nature of the script, John, when you talk about the fact that the door isn't open at this point, literally the next note that I have after my kids would also immediately try to open room 237 is that Jack doesn't start to crack until the snow comes. The hotel is holding off until they are really and truly isolated. If you remember, the first time Jack really flips out on Wendy 
with the whole, you know, if, if I'm in here, I'm working. And when you come in here, it'll distract me. And it'll take me time to get back to where I was, uh, which is great. And he's, is. and he's great when he does that. That's when she comes in to tell him that it's supposed to snow that night. Yes. And so I think that the hotel is waiting until they are isolated. And in fact, if you look at, and obviously we're going to get there, if you look at the timing Danny goes into the hotel room and is and is strangled by something at exactly the same time that Jack is given this nightmare about murdering his family so that Jack wakes up and tells Wendy, oh, my God, I had the worst dream. I murdered you and Danny. And then Danny comes out with these strangulation marks on his neck. The hotel can clearly like could have killed him. Then it could have done something that all seems like a very deliberate plan. I agree. They have com- at that moment they have completely isolated Jack by him having said that right before Danny shows up injured and her saying you did this, didn't you? How can he possibly defend himself given what he's just said? And so when you look at this, a it's it's just keeping the tension ramped up through this kind of long build up uh, because it really does take about an hour before the wheels really start to come off on Jack and the movie really starts to turn into an out and out horror film. So it's, it's keeping that tension up, but it is also, it's operating according to a plan. And I think that the, the hotel is doing exactly what it wants to do. And it comes very close to getting exactly what it wants. It does. Yeah. I appreciate you giving it that kind of credit. And I don't think that's a reach at all. I mean, I do think it's very clearly being skillfully manipulative in how and when it does what it does and how that plays these people. Something I wanted to mention on Halloran that I didn't, that back in the category of, I'm not sure how to file this. I'm not convinced it's good or it's bad, but it's just something I'm, I'm wrestling with. It seems clear to me at the start that Halloran doesn't know what Danny is going to be in for here. Not really. He seems to have like a moderate level of concern for what's going to happen when this family is left alone in this hotel for months, even knowing that Danny has the, the shine. So whatever Halloran's experience at the Overlook has been, he does seem surprised when Danny reaches out to him at how badly it all goes, right? I mean, he doesn't make any effort in advance to avert this or warn anyone beyond Danny to be on their toes. I mean, he's kind of passive and he's, he's going along with everything and he just kind of seems to want this little boy to be prepared to cope with some scary stuff. Idea being that, Hey Danny, you know, if, if you couldn't shine, you'd be fine. You could spend this whole winter here and we wouldn't have to worry about you or your dad or anybody, but because you can, it's my duty to tell you that you're going to smell some burnt toast. And it, it just makes you wonder, was he the chef seven to nine years ago when Grady was the caretaker? How does he process that information that, that Grady killed his family? If so, why wouldn't he maybe be a little more prepared for what happens? And why is his response all about Danny and not Jack? I, I don't know. That kind of taps into one of my bigger questions, not even a problem necessarily just like a question, which is that is Halloran just wrong or has like a a lack of understanding as to exactly what's going on in the hotel? Because 
as you point out, he says to Danny, like, you know, that, that because like you have the shine, you'll see things that, that people who don't can't see. But then how do you explain the fact that both Jack and Wendy also see what's going on in the hotel? Are they all having shiny experiences or is Halloran just wrong? Yeah. Well, the fact that, that Halloran says my grandmother and I could have conversations without ever opening our mouths suggests that the shining is hereditary. And so I think there's reason to believe that maybe Jack and, and, Wendy do have some touch of it that is cumulatively effective in Danny. Uh, it may also be that the hotel simply chooses to reveal itself to Jack and Wendy, uh, that, that maybe Jack's madness allows him to see it in a way that, say, the, the Shining does in Danny. John, I, I, I really thought about this a lot through the prism of the what I'll charitably call a discussion we had about Session 9. Rich asked earlier in a discussion about this movie, what's the point of Danny Shining? Like, without referencing the book, what's the point of Danny Shining? What is it? How does it advance the story in any way and that kind of thing? Which is a, a relevant question. The thing that I find interesting is that there is an answer to it, right? The answer is that the hotel is attracted to Danny because of his shining. We don't get that in the movie, but that answer is there. And so one of the things that, that jumped out at me is the fact that Danny can communicate to Halloran. If you watch that scene when Halloran is suddenly blasted with these images that Danny is, is projecting to him with his shining, I think communicates that Danny's shine is much more powerful than Halloran really realized. Mm -hmm. And if you take that view, then you can sort of start to parse out, well, yeah, maybe that is something that is triggering the hotel to behave in these supercharged ways, that it's able to reveal itself, that it's able to do things that it isn't able to do, or maybe that's why it's just why it's behaving in such an exceptional way. And can you can you make the leap from there that, well, maybe Grady's kids had it, but it wasn't as powerful as it was uh, for, for Danny and that sort of thing. And the reason I mentioned the discussion about Session 9 is that I think that the seeds of all those things are in there. Because you're building off of a book and you have this larger mythology and, and all these years of interviews and everything to sort of build off of, you can do the research and gradually put together what the story is. And if you didn't, you could probably think about it long enough and maybe arrive at the same conclusions, even if you never read the book. And I'm not sure that if you thought about Session 9 as long or as deeply, that you would arrive at similar conclusions. Well, I'm not going to talk about session nine. Yeah, we don't, but, have, to say, we don't, um, we don't have to get into it. But I'm just saying it's the, it's the it's the difference between you don't have to tell me what the answers are, but there need to be answers. Right, right, right. And I feel like that's when we're talking about Danny shining in this instance and how it relates to the hotel and Halloran's relationship to it. Did he? Why didn't he say anything? Or why was he not aware of it? I think there are answers to all of those questions. And that makes this discussion much more productive. 
Well, I, I, I feel like I don't appreciate the juxtaposition that you're doing. Let's let's keep it to let's keep it to this movie, okay? <laughs> like, why does it have to be? Let's compare it to Session Nine. But well, no, John, wait, wait, John, because we're trying to figure out what the greatest horror film ever made is, and I'm trying to draw out for me what some of the guidelines that I'm using are in determining what films deserve to advance in that kind of But we don't have time. I don't want to, I don't want to argue with you about session nine. Uh, let's just talk about this movie. And I think you're raising, you know, interesting points about this movie. And it even makes me think and, and ask questions that I wasn't necessarily asking. And which is great, which is, it just occurred to me while you were talking, what happened to the caretakers at this hotel between 1970 and, you know, whether this is 77 or 78 or 79, whatever year this is. And one must assume there were caretakers and one must assume that murders were not committed, right? So that would lead us to believe that people who had no shine or were not otherwise vulnerable to manipulation came here, did their job, and went home. And so that does raise questions about the Grady twins or, you know, the Grady family or, you know, what is going on. And I think my immediate answer to why that happened to them and why that happens to the Torrances might be that predestination or the reincarnation or whatever it is that is represented by Grady says, I've always been here. And he says, you've always been the caretaker means that these certain souls, when they come back around, they, they drag their whole family or in, in in any event, like when they are drawn like moss to a flame back to the Overlook in their new life, they're fucking doomed in some way. They're going to play their role. They're going to come home in some way. What, what do you think of that? Does that does that work? Does that make sense? That's sort of a solid story argument. I wouldn't say that I feel like the film is doing a great job of making that point. You're definitely connecting a few dots, but sure. I mean, you, look, you're saying I, that's a reach. I mean, like we 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 the, the characters say very clearly that no, no. I I belong here, I'm associated here, and you are, and then we confirm it. Like that, these two souls are very much connected to this hotel. Yes, but, but I'm talking about the way in which you're. I'm I'm not denying the fact that the hotel says that to him. I'm just saying that you're drawing a conclusion as to what what it is that makes him always be part of it. And you're saying that it's part of this lineage of, of shining essentially, I guess like the, my, my question would be like, well, why not Halloran? I think that's a very interesting question. And I would say that Halloran is never there during the winter. And, you know, maybe, maybe somehow during normal business hours when there's all these other people there and stuff. And it's like, the isolation doesn't make people more vulnerable, that you're more protected. And also maybe just that, that, that his soul has never been consumed by it before. And so he's not one of the people that have been assimilated in the past. Well, and, and Halloran's not vulnerable in the way that Jack is. And a lot of that does have to do with the winter caretaker and the isolation. But I think it also just has to do with, with everything we've talked about, Jack's 
bruised ego and his alcoholism and you know his his poverty and being surrounded by all this opulence and stuff. Yeah, I don't think Halloran's I don't think Halloran's vulnerable in that way. Well, you're making a lot of assumptions about Halloran that we don't know. That he's not an alcoholic. <laughs> well, for one, sure, we don't know that he's that he's. An, I mean, we know next to nothing about Halloran. Well, he's he's obviously a, a, a pornography addict based on the, yeah. the art in, in his his Florida hotel room. But he's an art collector. An art collector. Sorry, yeah, that's a that is clear. Yeah, he likes to he likes to dress well. Um, we know a little bit about his uh, his family, but I mean, like, we know next to nothing about him. I, I guess that's where I'm saying, like, it's like, sure, any of that could be true, and like you're saying, Vic, maybe that is part of the mythology that that's built into the book. I don't know, having never read it, but watching the movie, I wouldn't say that maybe they've left the runway for you to draw those connections on your own. I'm just saying the movie is not drawing those connections for you, which isn't necessarily a good thing or a bad thing. It leaves a lot open to interpretation, I think, particularly the whole, like, Jack has always been there um, element of the story. I think you could imprint probably a, a number of different variations on it, and this theory seems like as good as any. I would not say it feels definitive. Well, I think like 2001 A Space Odyssey, it hints at larger things, it hints at the idea that that we're seeing one sort of small piece play out or we're getting one perspective on something uh, that is really beyond our understanding. And that's part of what makes it so effective to me. Yeah, I agree. Getting back to Jack for a minute, I happen to be looking at the scene where poor Danny is like sneaking into the apartment to get his truck and he's hoping that his father is asleep, but instead he's sitting on the side of the bed. And this is sort of their last uh, connection as, as a father and son where there's, you know, an echo of the fatherly love and connection that Jack had previously expressed to his son, but his son already knows like what's going on with his dad. So it's, it's fraught with tension. A commentary track that I listened to indicated that in the dozens and dozens of takes that Kubrick had Nicholson do, that the actor would give his director plenty of friendly and normal or neutral readings of lines. And both of them, but largely Nicholson, have taken flack from detractors of the film for what you might call mugging or just sort of an over-the-top approach to the performance – and, you know, I'm not totally, you know, disregarding that critique, but Kubrick chose to take 20, 30, or 40 in, like, hours into shooting as, as Nicholson would just become more and more hostile, more and more manic and exaggerated. Those were the takes that Kubrick chose. Those are the takes that are in the fucking movie. Hey, maybe, you know, maybe, maybe Stanley Kubrick was a jobber, a mediocre director, Maybe he, he didn't know what the fuck he was doing. If that's your opinion, I guess you're entitled to it. But personally, I, I think that Kubrick understood that we have to move quickly with Jack to get him where we need him to go. I would challenge the dis- detractors that if they, if they got the version of this movie that they apparently want, the unexpected side effect would be if you slow play this more or you tamp down Nicholson's performance – you would 
inevitably get this abrupt gear shift late in the movie or a sense if he didn't do that, that, or either way, that his madness wasn't earned or authentic. It comes out of nowhere. I recognize that something isn't perfect in a movie if people aren't digging it. But I just think that that is the last ill-considered snap judgment opinion of this movie that endures. And I think it's going to be discredited or should be discredited after a deeper analysis. That I, I think Cooper, I get and I appreciate and I sign off on Kubrick's decision to show this, like there's always a craziness to Jack Torrance because it, it helps us believably get to the, the lunacy that this character gets to. And yeah, I mean, like I said, Nicholson was open. He gave him many ways to, to cut this movie together and Kubrick chose the most extreme versions of his performance. John Kubrick did leave the helicopter shadow in early, so he, he's fallible <laughs> as a director. What I want to point out about this this scene, and it comes up earlier, this scene has a, a brilliant use of the mirror in the caretaker's apartment where Danny's in the doorway. Jack is in the foreground but turned away from us, but we can see his face in the mirror. And we get a similar shot when Wendy wheels in, or uh, not wheels in, but brings in his breakfast Mm -hmm. earlier when he slept till 1130 in the morning. And we're sort of watching Jack sleep and the camera slowly pulls back and we realize we're not actually watching Jack sleep. We're watching a reflection of it as she comes in. And that both of these shots are setting up the red rum scene coming up where we're going to see that reflected in the same mirror. Uh, I think that I thought it was exceptional directing, and and again, aside from the helicopter shop, lends to what you're <laughs> saying, John, that that uh, uh, Kubrick really was playing three dimensional chess and and really setting up the scares with a lot of the the shots that he was choosing. First of all, I want to say, John, I I agree with you with with a movie that chooses to operate the height of tedium that this film does in certain sections. I think that it was wise to not slow play the performances. I can't imagine how agonizing that would be. With regard to like the, the mirrors and everything, I think it's pretty easy to argue that this movie is, is certainly trying to explore like the dual nature of man and of personalities, the different layers that can like rest within someone. So it's like the idea that like Jack is like struggling with two different sides of himself, I think is a pretty consistent theme like throughout the movie. So, like, it, it does seem particularly obsessed with mirrors. That certainly may be true, but, Rich, I, I, I don't want this to sound insulting in any way. But it's almost, I feel like for, for Kubrick, the mirror as a metaphor for the duality of man's nature, it's almost like a pedestrian metaphor for him. Like, that's what we get in Mirrors with Kiefer Sutherland. <laughs> Making its first appearance on the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Somehow that movie comes up way more than it should on this podcast. Not a good movie. But just as a method of visual storytelling, I was really impressed that one of the iconic moments of this movie is Wendy waking up and Danny having written Red Rum on the door and her seeing it reflected in that mirror. And that moment is part of the reason that moment is iconic is because he has really made that mirror a fixture of the layout of this room and used it to this effect so that your attention is called to it. It doesn't just show up in that scene uh, in order to make that moment. It's part of that room 
leading up to it. And having seen this movie as many times as I have, I was really delighted. And, and I'm sure the, the pot had something to do with it uh, to draw that connection this late in the game. I'm not saying that uh, your interpretation is not correct. I'm just, I'm not that impressed that Kubrick recognized that he's going to need a mirror later in the movie, so he plants a mirror earlier in the movie. Well, and how he used it. Fuck you. you. You know what? You like all the goddamn mirror shots and what lies beneath, all right? Don't talk to me about mirrors. <laughs> no, I didn't. Yes, I you did. That piece of shit <laughs> movie. You made me watch that three times, Rich. <laughs> I didn't make you do anything, Vic. You did it to yourself. <laughs> Well, it seems like um, a somewhat incongruous moment to put this in, but I'd rather talk about it now than later. Let's talk about Wendy a little bit. This time, I really sympathized with her, and I understood her as much as I can remember ever doing. She's like a simple, in some ways, but a very loyal and loving partner. She gives Jack the benefit of the doubt for as long as possible. She thinks she understands him. She thinks she knows him, and she thinks that he has limits to what he's capable of, that she can count on. Limits that, in the course of this experience, are completely removed, much to her horror. And that dawning realization that she experiences of no longer knowing the man in front of her, of not recognizing her husband anymore, I don't know, guys. For me, I find it heartbreaking. This feels metaphorical and applicable to many sorrowful relationship situations in life. It's an extreme, but I think it's something that couples can get to for any number of reasons. On some level, this character is punished for accepting this man's faults for as long as she does and seeing the good in him. And I think that happens between partners in in any number of relationships, romantic and otherwise. And I don't know, it it resonated with me. I like Wendy more every time I see this movie. There's definitely a level of of honesty to her. And maybe that's what what you're speaking of when you refer to her simplicity. She is sort of like, you know, wearing her emotions on her sleeve. She's uh, having the, the conversation on the CB radio with the forest ranger. And like, you just sort of like get, the, get this general impression that she's just someone who just like, she just wants to have a conversation with someone. She feels like the most human of all the characters in this, in this movie to jump to that baseball bat scene, which is kind of the culmination of, of all those moments. I think I love that she spends so much of the scene sort of waving the bat around in a way that, that keeps him at bay, but she is definitely not committed to the idea that she is going to have to use it on him. Like, she's yeah. still making up her mind. And for some reason, I really love the piece of dialogue where I, I forget what, what, what prompts him to, what his prompt to her is. But, um, but her response is, I'm just very confused. Yeah. Which I think it's like the most honest piece of dialogue I can honestly think of for anyone in that position in a horror movie that, that I have heard recently. Yeah, that's exactly what you would feel in that situation. Like, yes, you would be like you would be afraid, but you'd also like you would be afraid of doing the wrong thing. You know, you're afraid of hitting your husband with a baseball bat when it's not completely warranted. And she doesn't know what's happening with Danny. She doesn't know what's happening with with him she just knows that she's confused and like she's not ashamed to just say it out loud even though he's acting like a complete loon she is the emotional core of this movie and as much as like she gets a lot of flack i think from 
mm-hmm. from critics for being sort of shrill. And, and we talked about this a little bit in the last class, so I won't go too much into it. I honestly just think she's giving one of the better performances in, in this movie. Like, she seems like a person. I love her in this role. I just think that she's such a wonderful soul. When I say she's simple, I don't mean like she has a lack of IQ or something. I think I mean like there's a there's an innocence and a purity and a lack of cynicism and a lack of distrust and just sort of yeah. a, you know, an openness to seeing the good in someone and giving them the benefit of the doubt. It's heartbreaking to see that trust betrayed. When my wife was in labor with our first child, she said some things to me that I, at a certain point, really wondered if she was possessed by vengeful spirits. <laughs> Holy <And> shit. <laughs> I, I did not consider uh, uh, hitting her with a baseball bat, mostly because she couldn't, she couldn't really threaten me. But I do understand the ways in which the person you're in love with can turn into someone that you don't really recognize I think we can all be on either side of that at different junctures in small, you know, obviously not this dramatic of ways, but I think that the movie legitimately and effectively taps into a dynamic that is is fairly universal and and very scary, but something that that people deal with in the course of of life. This is this is true to life. This is not, you know, just a statement about manifest destiny or not just merely thematic this is this is viscerally human well if you go back to that scene where she is is desperately trying to justify jack's having injured danny at some point yeah you can see that she has convinced herself of jack's turnaround she's convinced herself that he is a better person and that that coming away from that letting go of that uh, that idea is really hard for her. I mean, it's interesting. That's one of the the lines in the film when when Grady says, "You know, your your wife seems to be a bit stronger than we anticipated." Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, mm-hmm. Something along those lines, which you sort of look at at Shelley Duvall and her performance and think, "Really? Yeah. Strong, stronger? Are you sure?" And yet, yes. Like the the hotel was counting the fact that. And I'm going to say the hotel just as a as a sub for whatever the supernatural entity is. It was not counting on the fact that she really had it in her to hit her husband in the head with a baseball bat. They thought she was going to die right there. Yep. Well, and talk about I mean, going back to that to that idea of like the the character arcs in this movie. I mean, I feel like that's a pretty significant one for her. I took down a, a quote in that initial scene with the with the child therapist where. When she's explaining the story of, uh, of Jack and Danny, the way that she introduces the story is she says, it was purely an accident. My husband had been drinking. And then she goes on into the story. So it's like even from the outset, she is telling you that there are two sides of the story that she's just like refusing to reconcile in her own mind. And she has to cross that divide for herself and get to the point where she's willing to, to defend herself against them. That just reminded me of something that I found really amusing, which is earlier on when when she comes in before Jack really flips out on her, he's writing and and she says, "Well, it's just you know getting in the habit of writing every day." And Jack and Jack seems really mm-hmm. defensive. It's all and it's all in his face. Like his words are are kind of pleasant, but you tell that he's really annoyed that she's trying to tell him about 
what the process of writing is. He goes, yeah, that's all it is. And he's just like, clearly like, you fucking bitch. It's not that easy. And then literally the next thing we see is him throwing the tennis ball around the hotel and not writing. Another thing that I can relate to in this in this movie is the concept of, of writer's block or, you know, struggling with the pressure of needing to produce something. I mean, obviously, we can all, anyone who's, who's walked down that road can understand that. And it's another effective element of, of the vice that we're putting on this guy's skull, right? John, just to add to that. Oh. Ooh, what do we got? Uh, Stone Enjoy By. I won't. I won't give you the date because I don't want to. Uh, <laughs> Please don't. No. Give away the timeline for the for the listeners. Um, but let's just say it's an upcoming holiday. So whatever holiday is coming up next for you, that's when this Enjoy By is due. <laughs> could be New Year's Eve. Could be Arbor Day. Could be the Fourth of July. Who knows? If, yes. if you haven't had a stone enjoy by seek one out people they are delicious all right gang we're gonna make this one a two-parter tune in next time for the final coroner's report after this thorough but loving autopsy <laughs> <laughs>